Well, today we celebrate the day in which our Lord Jesus rose from the dead. The day that sealed his victory over sin and death. And for us, who put our faith in him, freedom from condemnation, rescue from our own failures. Jesus purchased our pardon with his blood. And Resurrection Sunday is as great a time as any to consider for a moment just how we respond to Jesus after what he has done for us. We're going to observe today an event that took place very shortly right before Jesus' crucifixion. And I think in this passage we can see illustrated several different responses to Jesus, several different approaches. And I would suggest that devotion is the best of the possibilities. I've titled the message today, The Value of True Devotion, where in Mark chapter 14 we're going to be looking at the first nine verses. Let me get a sip of water first. All that yelling. Let's read verses 1 and 2. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Now if we had been reading along in Mark's gospel, we would have noticed that in chapter 13, immediately leading up to this chapter 14 we're looking at here, Jesus has been talking to his disciples about some serious changes that are about to take place. Now, it all starts off when the disciples are telling Jesus, look at this temple, isn't it magnificent? And it's true, this was, in Jesus' time, the most magnificent iteration of the temple in Jerusalem. It was, it was more magnificent even than Solomon's temple. Uh, it had been decked out in Roman marble and had columns. And, you know, the Romans knew a whole lot more about building amazing structures than people did back when Solomon built his temple. So this version of the temple was spectacular. They'd been working on it for 46 years and would continue to do so uh, for a couple more decades. So uh, they, they bragged to Jesus about this temple, and Jesus turns to them and says, you see this magnificent building, not one stone is going to be left on another. And basically, Jesus communicates to his disciples, I have come to shake things up. I'm changing things. And this thing, uh, buildings erected by human beings as house of God, that's not the way moving forward. I'm building my own house of God. And it's going to be made up of living stones. And I'm going to, as a signal that I'm done doing things the old way, I'm going to remove this building from the face of the earth and it's going to be gone. And I am going to establish the kingdom of God. And he warns in chapter 13 of the dire consequences of rejecting Jesus as this Messiah and choosing to not participate in the kingdom he is establishing. There are terrible consequences if we uh, reject him. That's what's been leading up to chapter 14. And we see here uh, the religious leadership in Jerusalem, how they are reacting to Jesus. And it's very obvious. The chief priests were those who basically managed the temple. They had invested their lives in this building. Uh, Everything about their identity and their accomplishments was tied up in this building. They had no interest in Jesus and his talk of it being removed. 
Uh, I don't even know if they heard Jesus say those words to the disciples, but clearly their attitude towards Jesus was not one of surrender. Here is the Messiah we've been waiting for. Let's uh, ally ourselves with him and ask him to take over. When God finally sent that Messiah that these religious folks had been waiting for for so long, they realized something they might not have thought about. You know, when the Messiah comes, I'm no longer going to be the one in charge. He's going to call the shots. He is going to decide how it works. And I'm not going to be the one controlling everything. So when Jesus shows up and he shows up in power, when he spoke, people recognized that he spoke with an authority nobody else had ever spoken with. He commanded the waves and the sea and the the wind and it obeyed. He commanded sickness and even death and it obeyed. Clearly this was the one God had promised was coming to establish the kingdom of God and yet they wanted nothing to do with him. They begin to plot and the scribes were the experts on scripture. Isn't that ironic? The ones who better than anyone should understand how Jesus was the perfect fulfillment of what God had promised. And these religious leadership people are conspiring together because they realize they don't want God's king. They'd rather stay in control. And they're trying to figure out how can we arrest him, but uh, we don't have any legitimate cause to arrest him. So how can we arrest him by stealth? What underhanded, sneaky way can we trump something up and arrest him? And uh, how can we not just arrest him, but how can we kill him? Uh, We want to be done with him. We want him out. And there's one concern. Let's not do it during the feast, lest there be an uproar. Now, Passover was one of the three feasts that every Jewish male was required by the law of Moses to attend physically every year. So you can imagine that Jerusalem at this time, there were Jews scattered all over the world. They would travel back to Jerusalem. Many, many Jews would travel back to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, followed by the week of unleavened bread. And uh, during this time, the population in Jerusalem had swelled far beyond what it normally was. And they realized that when these feasts take place, the Romans are paying very close attention because the Jews have always been a a cantankerous people. They have not easily accepted Roman rule over themselves. They've always chafed at Roman rule. So uh, the Romans are very keen to keep control of this area of land, Uh, perhaps not so much because of uh, its produce, but because it was the only way to get from northern, the northern Mediterranean to the northern, north of Africa. Uh, there was just that little strip of land to get all your armies across if you needed to do something in Alexandria. So they wanted to control this, and they were very keen to make sure anytime there was anything that smelled of uprising, they would bring in their armies and crush it. So they said, uh, you know, there are so many people here that are so excited about Jesus. We need to figure out how to do this, but let's do it when there are fewer people here because we don't want the Romans to get upset with us. It's interesting. God has sent his promised eternal king, and they're plotting to kill him, while at the same time they're concerned and worried about what the Roman government is going to do. 
They're afraid of the wrong ruler. Caesar is not the one they needed to be worried about. I have a question from these first two verses. Jesus came to end the religious establishments in Jerusalem and install the kingdom of God in their place. Why do you think the most religious people are often the ones uh, opposed to God's activity? Let's keep reading verse 3. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. So Jesus is in the outskirts of Jerusalem in the small town of Bethany. This is the town of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, the town where Jesus brought Lazarus back from the dead. But he's not in their house at this moment. He's in the house of a man named Simon, and he's known as Simon the leper. I'm almost certain that Jesus had to have healed him of his leprosy. Otherwise, he would not be hosting parties. Uh, the Jews were very careful about things that caused you to be contaminated ritually. And uh, lepers were required by the law of Moses to remain outside of where people lived and to actually warn people away if they ever got close because to come in contact with a leper would make you unclean and unfit to worship God, and especially during Passover when people are coming and traveling and making all the expense to come and worship in Jerusalem at Passover, nobody would be contaminated, contaminating themselves by going into the home of a leper. But there Jesus is, so I'm assuming this was yet another one of the miracles of Jesus, that this is a man who had been a leper and is no more. And there he is with him, reclining at table, when a woman shows up. We're not told her name. Uh, if this is the same woman that uh, we read about in the Gospel of John, John it would have been Mary, uh, the, brother of, the sister of Lazarus. But uh, I'm not positive that it's the exact same event. But uh, she shows up with an alabaster flask of pure nard. Now we know if you've tried to buy something for Valentine's Day and decided to buy some nice perfume, or cologne for your significant other, uh, you know that a, a little bit of that costs a lot of money, right? You know, you, you get a little thing like this and it's like 80 bucks or 100 bucks and you're like, wow, that's, that's special stuff. Well, that's kind of the idea. She had this jar full of ointment of pure nard. Now, this was something that was produced in India, would have had to have been imported, and was extremely valuable. As we keep reading, we'll find out exactly how valuable. But this is a very expensive uh, cologne or perfume. Uh, and she comes into the house and breaks the flask open. Now, likely uh, for this woman, this might have been her dowry, something that she was meant to save uh, to go along with her when she was wed, uh, and to kind of sweeten the pot uh, for finding a husband for her. Uh, this was likely the single most valuable thing she owned. And uh, she breaks it and pours the whole thing out on Jesus. So she doesn't just use it for Jesus or allow Jesus to make some use of it. She does something with it that causes it to be completely consumed in the process. She keeps none of it back. She retains none of this. And spends it on Jesus. 
Let's read verses 4 and 5. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. There's some people watching who are indignant. It's like they had Facebook back then. You know, they were, they were outraged at the waste because they made the quick calculation in their heads. I, I know what that is. That stuff is expensive. 300 days wages. Even at minimum wage, right now, and uh, if, if the minimum wage is popped up to $15 an hour, it'll be twice what I'm about to tell you. But even in today's minimum wage, that's like $17,400. That's expensive perfume. And you think of something like that, not as something to use, but as something to sell, and it's worth a whole lot more than just how good it's going to smell. And that's the way they think about it. That's over $17,000 you just wasted on Jesus. He didn't need that. It's interesting to me that we have some people who respond to Jesus with outright hostility. They want nothing to do with him. If they could kill him, they would. And be done with him. There are others who want to be around Jesus, uh, but who aren't really devoted to him, who aren't really thinking, what is the best I have to bring in worship to my king, but who are thinking, uh, how much is enough? What's the least I can give him and still get by? What's the bare minimum? And when they are, are confronted with genuine acts of devotion, they are offended by them. It seems too extravagant. Why? Because there's nothing similar to that in their own hearts. That's not how I treat Jesus. You're making me look bad. Sometimes we're uncomfortable with people who are too passionate about Jesus. And it's not because it's bad to be too passionate about Jesus. It's probably that we're not passionate enough. And it's easier to criticize and do nothing than to actually do something. That's what they do. They've done nothing to show their devotion to Jesus. They just showed up for the show. This woman came and brought the best she had to offer and poured it out on Jesus. And yet they scold her. What a waste. And there are people who do these calculations of how to do ministry in the most efficient possible way. And they sit back and they judge and analyze what everybody else is trying to do in service of the kingdom. And how it could have been done better, should have been done better. And we throw around words like excellence. And what we're masking is our own lack of passion for Christ. You know, it's a whole lot easier to criticize what other people are doing for Christ than to go out there and do it ourselves. That's what they're doing. I have a question 
from these verses. The perfume poured out on Jesus was worth 300 days of wages, more than $17,000 in our economy. Critics called it a waste. Why do we often find it easier to criticize how others are serving Jesus than to actually serve him ourselves? But Jesus intervenes. Let's read verse 6. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. I love that Jesus sticks up for the people who love him. Jesus doesn't enter into the argument about how best this very valuable thing could have been uh, leveraged for the kingdom. Let's use the language, right? He doesn't talk about that at all. Why are you bothering her? She has done this out of love and devotion to me. How could that ever be the wrong thing? She's done a beautiful thing to me. And I love that even if other people don't get it, if people around you are downers about how passionate you are about Jesus, don't worry. Jesus loves that. And he's the only one whose opinion you should worry about. The rest of us are just a bunch of posers. Let's keep reading verses 7 and 8. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. A couple of things Jesus says. First, he directs his attention not to the woman, but to the guys who are grumbling about her. And he tells them, you've always got the poor with you. If you're so concerned about their terrible state, you've got money. Give it to them. Why do you feel the need to co-opt her gift to me and use it to cover the needs of the poor? Why don't you take care of them? What's stopping you from making this extravagant act of devotion and service to your fellow man? Go out and do it. Stop talking about it. Do it. They're there. There's a need. You talk about it. Don't criticize somebody else for not doing it. Why aren't you doing it? Take care of their need. Do what you want to do for them. Give them. You can always do good to the people around you that are in need. We always are surrounded by need. It's so much easier to sit back and analyze what other people are trying to do than to actually step out and do it ourselves. Just do it. Now, when it comes to what this woman in this particular instance has done for Jesus, Jesus says, unlike the people in need around you, there's a very limited window of opportunity to show me this kind of devotion. I'm not going to be around a whole lot longer. And guess what? I'm about to be buried... And uh, I would appreciate the customary anointing that goes along with that. Now, as we know from Jesus' uh, experiences with the crucifixion, he was crucified on Friday. And they took him down from the cross right before sunset. And in Jewish custom, once the sun sets on Friday, it's no longer Friday. It's Sabbath. 
And on Sabbath, you cannot do work like take people down from crosses and bury them. So they rushed last minute Friday to get Jesus off the cross and into the tomb, and that's all they had time to do. And Sabbath, they did nothing because they were resting, keeping with the Jewish tradition. Sunday morning before dawn, they get all the spices and all the things necessary to give him a proper, decent burial. And they are on the way to the tomb, but guess what? He's already gone. Jesus was never anointed for burial, except this moment. This woman provided for Jesus a service of loving devotion that others would try to do and were unable to. Sometimes when we give Jesus extravagantly the best we have and we just pour it out on him, we are meeting needs. We are addressing realities within the things that are going on in the kingdom of God that are far beyond our understanding. That was the case with her. She was the only one who anointed Jesus for burial. And verse 9. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Here's what you need to know about the gospel. We talk about it a lot in church. The good news that we have sinned and broken not only our communion with God, but our communion with each other. Not only that, our communion with creation itself. And through our sin, all of creation has become tainted with sin. That's what we call the fall. All of creation came under the power of sin. And that is why there is so much in the world that is wrong. God saw this. And rather than turn his back on us, rather than wipe the slate clean and start over, he committed himself to redeem. So, what did that mean for him? That meant he had to take on flesh and become a human being and walk this earth among us and willingly give up his life on the cross to take upon himself our offense against him and to pay the debt of sin for us so that we could be forgiven, not only forgiven, but that by the miraculous working of God's Spirit in us, we could be transformed from who we are now into the perfected glory that Jesus has purchased for us. So that sin becomes not only something whose consequences, ultimate consequences, we are pardoned, but whose presence and power over our lives is taken away by Jesus. The gospel is this promise of transformation and life eternal because of what Jesus has done for us. All of that is great, and we try to sum it up into very simple terms and ABCs or four spiritual laws. We try to hit the major points of it so we can condense it and make it understandable. But here's what we can't forget about the gospel. What God is after is not just our agreement about the facts of what Jesus has done. What God wants is our hearts. What he wants is our love. What he wants is devotion. We were created by Jesus for Jesus. And we will always struggle in this life 
until we come to terms with the fact that the reason I breathe is Jesus. The reason my heart beats is Jesus. The reason I am on this ball spinning in space is Jesus. The whole purpose of my existence is Jesus. And when my soul comes to terms with that and embraces it, and I turn to Jesus, not just as the guy who pardons my sin, but as the object of my heart's highest devotion, then I discover why we call it good news. That's what I was made for. Wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. I have a final question. Jesus indicated that this woman's devotion will be told when the good news is shared. How does extravagant devotion help us better understand the gospel? We see three ways of relating to Jesus in this passage. Some people are too uh, committed to running their own lives to let Jesus in. And they will do anything they can. They will scheme, they will plot to get Jesus off the throne. It's a waste of time. Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and on earth, and he is not about to let go of it. He is going to endure until all creation is purged of sin and death. And he brings the whole of it to right. So resisting that is, is a wasted effort. But some choose that for this illusion of control. Some play at the religiosity. They'll show up at church once in a while. They'll say pious things and they'll look on. But that true devotion, that true surrender just really hasn't penetrated their hearts. And all they can offer is criticism and grumbling at those who are trying to love Jesus with all their hearts. Hopefully, our example to follow is this woman who took the most valuable thing she had and didn't do the math, didn't try to calculate maximum return in the kingdom and impact and all these things, strategy and planning. She just said, this is the best I have and I want Jesus to know that he is everything to me. I'll just break it and pour it out on his head. I'll give him the best and let him make of it what he will. I hope that is our response to the Jesus who died and rose for us. Let me say a word of prayer. Jesus, thank you for coming to rescue us. Thank you for giving us everything for even giving your own life, for even pouring out your own life for us on the cross to purchase us back from sin and death. Lord, we pray for hearts like the heart of this woman that see in you the object of our soul's deepest longing and that we will bring before you the best, everything, And Jesus, take our lives and make of them what you will. 
and do of us what glorious thing you have in mind and shine in our lives in a way that will draw others to you. We love you, Jesus. Thank you so much. Amen.